0: Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nabem, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. On January 17, 1961, the 34th President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, delivered the final public speech of his presidency in which he left a legacy warning the country about the implications of the conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry, which he noted was new in American experience. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. And as a former supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe during World War II, Eisenhower was an accomplished military leader and hence a reliable source on the growing power of this new establishment. More specifically, Eisenhower was referring to a burgeoning military establishment and the development of a permanent arms industry. As a result of Eisenhower's speech, over the past few decades, the military-industrial complex, hereafter referred to as MIC, has become a phrase used by researchers and political commentators to describe a complex web of connections pervading the state and industrial apparatus. And this includes the military, the Pentagon politicians, defense contractors, and large corporations that profit from or contribute to war efforts. So overall, the term is now understood to represent an overlap between private military contractors and the federal government, emphasizing colossal military budgets, the influence exerted by defense industry experts over public policy, and the massive profits to be reaped from waging endless wars. So what are the threads of thought that instigated Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961? At the core of any theorising on the MIC is the existence of a powerful Defence Industrial Base, or DIB, comprising various interest groups which can be traced to the heart of government. And the DIB refers to a government's industrial assets which are directly or indirectly involved with the production of equipment for a country's armed forces, thus allowing the MIC to become a self-generating structure or agency, embodying the interests of a wide range of institutions within society. The strength of such interest groups leads to intense competition for resources and a strong demand for military spending where external threats are often exaggerated to provide necessary justification for further spending. Consequently, the MIC creates an imbalance on the domestic economy by crowding out civilian resources such as health, education, and social welfare. Also, the companies involved develop a cultural mindset embracing inefficiency and waste and an increasing reliance on defense contracts as they become less able to compete in the civilian market. And so the idea of a crossover point between commercial and military activity through armaments makers predates Eisenhower's address. For instance, the intellectual origins of the MIC can be traced back to the anti-war movement during the 1930s. And one prominent argument expressed at this time was the Merchants of Death thesis, based on the international best-selling book written in 1934 by University of Chicago instructor Helmut C. Engelbrecht and journalist Frank C. Hannigan. The term merchants of death became a popular byword during the 1930s after the book exposed the international arms industry supported by the industrial and banking sectors which had respectively supplied and funded the First World War. The authors detail how arms manufacturers lobbied against disarmament after World War I and heightened the fear of military threats in order to Secure more favorable markets for their products. During this period, the United States was a strong advocate of disarmament and isolationism, and it coincided with a legislative review of the American arms industry known as the Munitions Inquiry. Its chairman was Republican Senator Gerald P. Nye of North Dakota, and after the investigation ended in 1936, Gerald Nye stated. Quote, there is certainty that the profits of war constitute the most serious challenge to the peace of the world. The removal of profit from war would materially remove the danger of more war. And another theory that achieved prominence during the first half of the 20th century was the war economy thesis, which explored the dangers of close ties between military power and economic or political interests. Author James Ledbetter in his 2011 book, Unwarranted Influence, Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Military-Industrial Complex argues that advanced industrial straits are so intertwined with the manufacturers of military equipment that they have become mutually dependent, and according to Ledbetter not only do arms manufacturers encourage war, dramatize war threats and object to disarmament for the sake of profits. But any sustained reduction in state military expenditure would effectively lead to a major economic downturn because advanced states have come wholly dependent on the footings of a permanent war economy. In addition, another book that focused attention on industrial militarism and economic power is The Power Elite, written in 1956 by U.S. sociologist C. Wright Mills. Mills argued that mainstream power within American society was based on a of the economic, political, and military spheres. The traditional power structures such as religion, education, and family institutions had already been eroded, giving way to a powerful union between the corporate sector, politicians, and the military. And according to Mills, the vanguard within these organizations were, in his own words, the warlords, the corporation chieftains, and the political directorate which had merged to form the power elite of America. He also believed that invisibility was a radical new form of unspoken power for capitalist democracies in the post-war period where observable executive decision-making belonged to a bygone era. So let's now briefly review the development of the military-industrial complex. The MIC's prominent fluctuated throughout the latter half of the 20th century, declining from the late 1980s and then rising at the beginning of the 2000s, primarily because the end of the Cold War saw profound changes in the international security environment. Whereas global military expenditures and arms exports peaked in the mid-1980s, they fell gradually due to the improvement in East-West relations, falling rapidly after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And at the start of the new millennium, military expenditure in Russia The successor state of the USSR and the other post-Soviet states was drastically reduced due to their weakened economic states. Conversely, the United States began a gradual increase in military expenditure, reflecting American hegemony in the post-Cold War world. During the Cold War, defense requirements were mainly focused on Western Europe to deter the perceived Soviet threat. Generating specialized state-industry relationships, and this created a beneficial context and stable environment for the long-term development of the MIC but after the cessation of cold war hostilities the outlook for strengthening the MIC seemed less favorable due to the upheaval in the international security environment and this led to drastic cuts in military spending and arms productions in the united states and a period of consolidation within the arms industry involving mergers and takeovers of key commercial military production centers. But it was the war on terror sparked by the 9-11 attacks and the prolonged wars in Iraq and Afghanistan which led to a sharp renewal of interest in the MIC. In addition, other factors such as the importance of oil for national security and the significance of Surveillance and unmanned strike capabilities such as drone technology radically altered the scope of the MIC. The U.S. government's reaction to the 9-11 events of September 2001 not only led to a massive increase in the Pentagon's budget, but it drastically changed the nature of the military budget debate. The magnitude of the change was unique from a historical perspective because the increase in U.S. military spending from 2001 to 2003 was more than the combined military budgets of major powers such as the United Kingdom and China. Moreover, the favorable political climate paved the way for a bullish mood among the top echelons of the MIC. The spending increases that began after 9-11 continued throughout the first decade of the 2000s. The Pentagon's base budget plus expenditures on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq pushed total military spending to over 700 billion per year, the highest level since World War II. So now that we have an understanding of the origins and development of the MIC, let's focus on another of its key components, which is the mainstream corporate media. Because it's important to remember that the military-industrial complex also extended its influence to most of the media establishment. For instance, heavy machinery and infrastructure firms with military ties with major advertisers in news outlets. Also, the ruling class from media corporations enjoy close links, both financial and social, with the arms industry, the top echelons of the military and Washington's foreign policy elites. This points to a complex web of relations between the MIC and the elite media establishment to not only control the communication channels which would legitimize military intervention but ultimately to control public opinion. Hence the corporate media has a vested interest in turning a blind eye on government excesses such as unlawful use of military power. And in the absence of checks and balances on government power Perceptions of war can be deviated to rally support for a military machine that profits from endless wars. For instance, in The Merchants of Death, Engelbrecht and Hannigan provide an illuminating quotation Quote, The press is too powerful and important to be neglected by the arms makers, hence, none of the great arms merchants are without their connections. Sometimes a newspaper is bought outright, sometimes a controlling interest is sufficient. In practice, the control and use of the press works out in various ways, because newspapers live from advertising. Armament makers seldom advertise their military wares. It's much better to advertise their ordinary industrial products, such as railroad tracks, machines, construction materials, etc. And C. Mills also expressed deep concerns about the concentration of power by the corporate media, which would negate the ability of public opinion to debate and influenced democratic processes. He stated, quote, There is a movement towards concentrated powers and the attempt at monopoly control from powerful centres, which, being partially hidden, are centres of manipulation as well as of authority. Mills believed that they were not coincidental but indicative of an integrated elite power structure and one that transcended the formal checks and balances of the political system. And in the following sections of the episode, the top echelons within the MIC, such as large corporations, politicians, the Pentagon will be examined further, in particular, how the concentration of power within the corporate media influences the messaging that we receive as consumers on a daily basis. So let's start by examining the growth of the military-industrial complex. The present-day MIC is a complex web of interwoven and overlapping industries linked by a maze of powerful people and companies. With an invisible reach and often nefarious interests, the MIC includes not only the military and arms manufacturers, but a political dimension, including members of Congress serving in government posts and those from previous White House administrations. In addition, there are representatives from big oil producing companies, defense contractors, surveillance and technology companies, service sector companies that are contracted by the military and think tanks, to name a few. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, produces an annual analysis of global arms manufacturers, and according to its figures dated March 2022, the United States was the number one weapons exporter by a large margin. For the five years, from 2017 to 2021, the U.S. accounted for 39% of major arms deliveries worldwide, over twice what Russia transferred and nearly 10 times what China sent to its own arms clients. Furthermore, according to the website defensenews.com, the five largest defense contractors in the world in 2021 by U.S. dollar revenue were all American companies. They are as follows. Lockheed Martin Corporation with revenues of 62 billion US dollars, Raytheon Technologies 42 billion US dollars, Boeing 32.4 billion US dollars, Northrop Grumman 31.4 billion US dollars, and General Dynamics Corporation 29.8 billion US dollars. These five contractors account for over one third of all Pentagon contracts, according to defense analyst William Hartung in his 2012 book, Profits of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military Industrial Complex. This unique industry concentration is a legacy of the merger boom of the 1990s when the Clinton administration subsidized the mergers of the most prominent defense contractors to address post-Cold War reductions in military expenditure. Subsequently, as U.S. military spending began to rise in the early 2000s, allocations of resources was much easier because only a few large companies remained. And Lockheed Martin is by far the largest arms producer in the world, and William Hartung's 2012 book provides a meticulously researched and eye opening expose of this behemoth company in terms of its reach and influence. Hartung shows that in 2008 alone, Lockheed Martin had 36 billion in total federal contracts, 29 billion of which came from Pentagon contracts making it not only the nation's leading weapons contractor, but the top overall government contractor as well. Hartung notes that Lockheed Martin has more power and influence than any other Pentagon contractor. It spent $15 on lobbying and campaign contributions in 2009 alone and claims to have an operation presence in 46 states of the US. This influence is exerted primarily on members of Congress who control the massive budgets for defense spending, and are ultimately dependent on votes in the Senate to pass the, the budgetary measures. Harting explains that Lockheed Martin fought tooth and nail to preserve their F-22 Raptor fighter plane which at 350 million US dollars per plane was one of the most profitable products but also one of the most expensive combat aircraft ever built. And central to their lobbying campaign was the persistent mantra of jobs 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 in 46 states. Indeed, the Jobs' argument is extremely effective in swaying members of Congress who need the necessary votes to maintain their popularity in their home states. For instance, in the campaign for the F-22 Raptor, Democrats John Kerry and the late Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts voted for the plane because Raython was based in Massachusetts, was responsible for the electronic systems on the plane, despite the fact that the majority of the building work was completed in California. And a similar situation applies to Northrop Grumman's B2 stealth bomber, which sources its components and parts from almost every state in the US and would inevitably lead to widespread protests from the more liberal members of Congress if this model was decommissioned. And so let's now take a look at another method where representatives of the MIC will exert their influence. And this is the so-called revolving door. This refers to the back-and-forth exchange of top officials between the government, the Pentagon, and those companies that do business with both sectors. Although ethics laws are in place to try to prevent such conflict of interest, they are noticeably weak, unenforced, and insufficiently targeted to prevent such practices. The Project on Government Oversight, or POGO, is an independent watchdog that investigates and exposes corruption, abuse of power and instances where the government fails to serve the public. And it has created a database to track the movement of former government officials who join the defence industry as executives, lobbyists or other positions. In a 2018 report entitled Brass Parachutes, The Problem of the Pentagon Revolving Door, author Mandy Smithberger provides a detailed analysis of this practice. Her findings show that from 2008 to the present, over 380 high-ranking Department of Defense or DOD officials and military officers became lobbyists, board members, executives or consultants for defense contractors within two years of leaving the Defense Department. The report revealed how the revolving door leads to trends of agency capture and Large defense contractors accumulating monopoly power, which in the short term benefits defense industry executives and their stockholders, but in the long term undermines competition and performance, leading to much higher prices for the military and taxpayers, the report also highlighted the hiring methods used by defense contractors to acquire senior officials from the DoD in contracts involving major weapon systems development and also the choice of officials related to military sales by defense contractors. These examples serve to highlight the chronic problems of loopholes which exist within the existing ethics laws. And a key finding from the report revealed that there were 645 instances of the top 20 defense contractors in fiscal year 2016, hiring former senior government officials, military officers, members of Congress and senior legislative staff in positions such as lobbyists, board members or senior executives in 2018. Of those instances, nearly 90% became registered lobbyists where the main requirement was influence peddling. The report highlighted that the revolving door is not only extensive and virtually unchecked, but it is even encouraged. For example, Battlefield 2 Boardroom is a board development program hosted by the National Association of Corporate Directors which helps prepare retired and soon-to-retire military officers to serve in the boardroom with private companies, including large federal contractors looking to hire new leadership. Furthermore, the reverse revolving door is also present today. Officials from the defence industry regularly assume positions in the government and are over-representative in positions of prominent leadership within the DoD. William Hartung's research in *Profits of War 2012 highlighted that several key policy posts in the Bush administration were filled by Lockheed Martin executives, lobbyists or lawyers. The beginning of President Obama's first administration was marked by a drive to curb the flow of lobbyists from the defense industry into the government via an ethics executive order, but eventually proved to be an empty gesture. Because Obama issued the first waiver shortly thereafter to his first Deputy Secretary of Defense, William Lynn, who was previously a Raython lobbyist. In addition, Lynn's successor, Ashton Carter, was also a consultant for Raython, while General James Mattis, a former board member of General Dynamics, was President Trump's Secretary of Defense, also. Patrick Shanahan, who served as President Trump's Deputy Secretary of Defense from 2017 to 2019 and later as Acting Secretary of Defense, entered the Trump administration after a 30-year-long career at Boeing. So the revolving door highlights perfectly the sentiments of President Eisenhower during his farewell speech, warning that the MIC could endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Government officials who go on to lobby for or serve on the executive boards of giant defence contractors, the very companies that they were supposed to oversee, produces an undeniable conflict of interest, as do officials from these companies going back to serve in the government. However, the flawed practices of the revolving door are not solely limited to personal exchange between the MIC, the government, and arms manufacturers, because the conflict of interest goes much further afield. The modern MIC is so pervasive that There is a wide range of sub-industries and companies associated with the collective umbrella of national defence, many of which may not appear to have direct ties to the military. Representatives of Big Oil are unquestionably implicated in the MIC, as are three other types of contractors which have benefited from post-9-11 security spending. They include, firstly, rebuilding and support contractors, secondly, private security contractors and weapons makers. The best known and largest rebuilding and support contract since 9-11 has been Kellogg, Brown and Root, which until 2007 was a division of the Halliburton Corporation, which is an oil services and engineering company. Halliburton's contract grew more than tenfold during the period 2002-2006 to on the strength of contracts to rebuild Iraq's oil infrastructure and provide logistical support to the U.S. troops there. The growth of support and security contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan has led researchers to focus attention on their sheer numbers. Although the Pentagon acknowledged that it has done a poor job of monitoring the number of private contractor employees which it funded, the Congressional Research Service, CRS, has carried out estimates based on the best available data. And their estimates show that as of March 2011, There were more private contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan, 155,000, than there were actually uniformed military personnel, 145,000. In Iraq, for instance, the majority of these contractors, more than 60%, were engaged in support services, such as serving meals, laundry, maintaining and repairing vehicles, and transporting fuel and equipment. In addition, private security contractors, such as armed personnel, involved in guarding embassies, serving as bodyguards, protecting infrastructure such as oil pipelines, and training Iraqi security forces, actually accounted for around 10,500 of the private contractors, or 16% deployed in Iraq. Furthermore, Halliburton has used nefarious employment practices when hiring lower-tiered support service contractors by employing laborers from countries such as Nepal and the Philippines at rates much lower than workers from the U.S. or Iraq. For example, in relation to Halliburton salaries, American workers averaged $60,000 per year, while salaries for foreign workers from Nepal and Philippines were as low as $3,000 per year. And interestingly, as a stark reminder of the insidious nature of the Revolving Door policy, Dick Cheney, ex-Vice President under George W. Bush, was the chairman and CEO of Halliburton from 1995 to 2000 before being elected to office. So let's turn our attention to how the military-industrial complex was applied to the Iraq War 2003. When we look closer at Dick Cheney's career in the White House, it sheds light on the connections between Big Oil and the MIC because the control of oil is vital to keeping America's vast war machine moving in the practical sense, without fuel for mechanized units, in addition to planes and ships for air and sea power. The MIC simply grinds to a halt. However, the linkages are far more complex and even more troubling. Because a wide range of Western oil companies, including ExxonMobil and Chevron, both American companies, as well as BP and Shell, British and Dutch companies respectively, and American oil service companies such as Halliburton, have been profiting from Iraqi oil since the US invasion of March 2003. Prior to the invasion, Iraq's oil was nationalized and closed to Western oil companies, but a decade after the war, it was mostly privatized and dominated by foreign firms. Author Christopher Duran in his 2012 book, Making the World Safe for Capitalism, How Iraq Threatened the U.S. Economic Empire and Had to be Destroyed, argues in his book that the drive for war came from Iraq's threat to American economic hegemony once the U.N. sanctions regime, which had been in place since 1991, came to an end. Duran argues that this hegemony is rooted in prolonging third world debt and ensuring access to corporate markets It was protection of these arrangements that motivated U.S. action rather than a simplistic desire to seize Iraqi oil. He states, quote, An independent Iraq, free to develop its own oil resources, unimpeded, would have had the potential to challenge Saudi Arabia's petrodollar financing of the U.S. economy and directly challenge the Saudi's capacity to serve American interests via its dominant oil producer status. Furthermore, Had Saddam Hussein remained in power, he may have favoured the European companies' access to Iraqi oil at the expense of American companies. And this would mean Iraq selling its oil in euros instead of dollars, which was a terminal threat to the US dollar dominance. Therefore, direct control of Iraq via regime change meant not only removing these impediments to American economic global dominance, it also meant gaining sovereignty over Iraq's oil production as a complement to, or even as a potential, replacement of Saudi oil supplies. And so in the next section, I'd like to examine another key component of the MIC, which is the influence of think tanks. Think tanks represent another branch, mainly because of their influence over the direction of public policy, which in many cases does not originate in Congress, but from external groups eager to promote their agendas, and they have close ties to those people operating in government. Think tanks can influence a policy framework from various points on the political spectrum and have played a central role in foreign policy and war-making. One such think tank was the Project for a New American Century, PNAC, which was a neoconservative think tank based in Washington and founded in 1997. Its stated goal was to promote American global leadership and its statement of principles argued for the need to significantly increase defense spending, and to adopt a Reaganite policy of military strength. The founders of PNAC, William Kristol and Robert Kagan, advocated for regime change in Iraq as early as 1998 and initiated an open letter to President Bill Clinton on January 26, 1998, calling for the removal of Saddam Hussein. Among the many signatories of this letter were key PNAC members, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Secretary of Defense, and Deputy Secretary of Defense, respectively, under George W. Bush. The membership of PNAC effectively amounted to a who's who of individuals that would represent top echelons of the future national security team in the second Bush administration, including Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney. William Hartung remarks that all were early advocates of the Iraq war and all played a role in misleading the American public to justify U.S. intervention. This viewpoint is echoed by author Christopher Duran, who states, the Iraq invasion, among unfortunately countless other examples, has displayed for all to see that the United States is at best a feeble democracy in which corporations are utterly dominant over human citizens. And these comments serve as another timely reminder of Eisenhower's earlier warnings regarding the acquisition of unwarranted influence. And in the next section I'd like to focus on another area of interest in which The dominant corporate sector have wielded undue influence on society's viewpoints and behaviour, ultimately affecting democratic processes, namely the influence of the mainstream corporate media. In Eisenhower's farewell address to the nation, he alluded to how society may repel the disastrous rise of misplaced power by his reference to an alert and knowledgeable citizenry. This statement is particularly pertinent because wars are not only fought using military hardware, In addition to fighting at land, sea and air, a simultaneous media war is fought over public opinion and the control of civic populations. The media also becomes a battleground and journalists are drawn into the conflict either voluntary or through the orders of their respective organizations. In the United States, the free press is often regarded as a mechanism to hold governments accountable or dissuade them from fateful decisions regarding war by keeping society alert and sufficiently informed. Commentators often cite the First Amendment as a means of countering government control over the dissemination of information. However, in recent years, the esteemed values within journalism, such as objectivity and fairness, which aim to create a balanced coverage of victims and aggressors alike, have been downgraded by many commentators from the journalism industry and academic circles, especially in light of events such as the NATO bombing campaigns of Serbia, In 1999 and that of Libya in 2011. The fact remains that warfare has a long history of requiring public support and great effort is made to gain public support and accept the actions of the state in a given conflict. In addition, as a key component of the MIC, the visual media's unique power of influence makes them more likely to deploy propaganda techniques during military conflicts. As such, the U.S. military will resort to great efforts to influence and control the distribution of visual images and journalism reporting at an international level. Traditionally, the American press has furthered its cause to remain independent and unbiased by referring to Thomas Jefferson's famous argument that the government derives its power from the consent of the governed. In this regard, the press have nailed their colours to the mast by interpreting this statement as a means to ensuring the public receives neutral reporting and truthful accounts of the news. Therefore, any debate within the public sphere should be free from bias. Hence, the logical conclusion becomes the greater the variety of news sources, such as newspapers and independent television stations, this ensures that the people's voice is actually amplified. However, the consolidation of media conglomerates over recent decades conveys a markedly different picture. Traditionally, media outlets were founded in a proprietal age as fiercely independent companies. But in the modern era of unbridled mergers and acquisitions, the power and influence of the new age of media is strictly under the control of a handful of conglomerated corporations. To place these industry changes into some form of perspective, in 1983 there were 50 dominant media corporations in the United States whereas today there are only six media giants. As of September 2020, the six media giants are AT&T, which was previously bought Time Warner, CBS, Comcast, Disney, News Corporation, which is the parent company of Fox News, and Viacom. These six conglomerates own a staggering 90% of the media, including newspapers, magazines, book publishers, motion picture studios, and radio and television stations. And because the media sector in most advanced democratic countries, is historically rooted in the capitalist system of private ownership. This means the management and operation of media firms must ultimately pursue a goal of profit maximization. But how did this remarkable trend of consolidation begin? Well, the eventual concentration of corporate media ownership in the United States largely began in the late 1990s due to large-scale investment in the U.S. media sector by Non-corporate financial institutions, specifically private equity investment firms, accelerated acquisitions of publicly traded media companies via complex financial maneuvers known as leveraged buyouts or LBOs. The LBO strategy employs debt financing to assume control of undervalued firms, restructure them to maximize efficiency and then exit the investment procedure by selling the streamlined properties at a high profit margin. Often the firms targeted in these deals assume heavy debt burdens and undergo considerable organizational restructuring as part of the process. This trend in media ownership correlates with a larger rise of private equity activity in the economy as a whole since the early 2000s, which is viewed as a component of a broader neoliberal capitalist framework. As a result of these high-profile changes, various authors have documented the resulting threat to the integrity of media institutions in terms of their public interest obligations. In particular, author Ben Bagdikian's critique of modern mass media, The New Media Monopoly, which was published in 2004, has arguably done the most to focus attention on the effects of concentrated corporate media ownership. One of the main critiques levelled against the intense consolidation of U.S. media outlets which began in the 1990s is the idea that objectivity in journalism has declined as a result of media bias arising from industry concentration. There are various levels to this argument which cumulatively apply a broad range of pressures on news content and its subsequent objectivity. At the first level, there is the influence of the journalists themselves in terms of their socio-democratic backgrounds and their personal and political beliefs which shape news directly, especially if their outlook conforms to the outlook and culture created by the newly consolidated environment. Second, there is influence from media ownership interests, specifically profit maximisation, combined with the hierarchical structure of media companies. These are the main drivers which influence content in accordance with consolidation. Thirdly, there is influence from a limited number of journalist sources within a consolidated industry because reporters tend to rely on mainly government sources. Fourthly, there is the influence from ideology. This refers to a system of values and beliefs that governs what is required for audiences, journalists and other participants in the news media system to maintain prevailing power structures. Ideology is a noteworthy point because it not only shapes news, but is manifested in the inner workings of the MIC and its relationship with another highly unique area of the media environment, which is big tech companies and the internet. So any analysis of media power concentration and the corporations that control modern narratives would be incomplete without a look at big tech firms and the internet. Large tech companies such as Google, Facebook and Twitter have exacerbated power concentration and broadened the reach of major media conglomerates. Due to the rise of the internet, today's news media now reaches more people in the US than at any time before, while being controlled by the smallest number of owners in history. The growth of the internet has also led to the tech giants having an unprecedented amount of power over the type of media we consume. But unlike the big six media conglomerates, large tech companies do not produce the content we see. They control which content we view. And in the following section, I'll briefly review the alignment of interest between different players in the information economy, as well as evidence of a growing alliance which extends to the MIC. Interestingly, although the structure of the power elite varies over time, the essential characteristics of revolving doors tight social relations and strategic partnerships remain as pertinent today as they did in the 1950s when C.W. Mills first raised concerns about the invisible nature of concentrated power. These issues become even more relevant in a world dominated by fake news and post-truth politics due to the influence of big tech over the media, the wider public and policy agendas. So let's review the so-called conduit network created by the large tech companies. And the crux of this matter lies in how concentration and consolidation in media markets has intensified under the shadow of digital monopolies like Google and Facebook. Indeed, what is truly unprecedented about the market power of these platforms is not the extent of dominance within their their own markets, which is search and social networking, but the enormous sway they hold over others. That's because they occupy a peripheral space between industries built on networking and copyright control. And in doing so, they have assumed control of something, much greater consequence, the means to connect these industries with end users. So let's imagine the scenario using an analogy of plumbing. Referral traffic is the water in the pipes which sustains most of the media industries. Next, the various carriageways through which this traffic flows are the conduits. This means intermediaries provide the water-pumping device, and there is no industry more dependent on the pumping device than news organisations. Facebook and Google together account for a staggering 70% of users directed to the websites of major news publishers. From any perspective, this translates into an immense degree of market influence. And to understand the impact of concentration on a news market, we have to get to grips with how dependence on referral traffic has raised capital costs in the world of digital journalism and raise new barriers to market entry. Because although news gathering may be cheaper than ever before, this is countered by the growing costs of competing in volume. This implies that the incessant demand for information means that prospective new entrants often need an exorbitant marketing budget to even begin to compete. And this is seen not only in rising advertising costs, As major brands outbid small players in keyword auctions, but also in the development of new marketing specialisms, namely search engine optimization or SEO and social media strategies that have particular resonance with the news industries. And this in turn spawns a whole new professional class of skilled marketers and agencies that make competing with the big names very costly. But despite these obstacles, over the last decade there's been a slow rise in the number of new entrants in mature digital publishing markets, from the Huffington Post to the Intercept.com. But their overall audience is still marginal compared to dominant television and newspaper brands, and it remains to be seen how much of a challenge they present to mainstream news agendas. Clearly, though, offering such a challenge is, from a commercial perspective, a high-risk manoeuvre, partly because. Major news algorithms disproportionately favor not only established large-scale brands, but also mainstream news agendas. For example, compliance to a mainstream news consensus can also be embedded inadvertently using an algorithmic design, the closest Conduit for a news agenda in the social media world is Twitter's trending topic. This highlights the most popular issues discussed on the social network in any locality or region and is denoted by the hashtag label for particular topical discussion threads. Trending topics have become a key mechanism by which certain ideas or perspectives gain visibility in the digital domain. They've become a symbol of newsworthiness. Equally, Google's news service algorithm provides a weighting system for news providers based on what it considers to be reliable indicators of news quality, such as the size of the audience, the size of the newsroom, and the volume of output. And therefore, it's hardly surprising that these metrics would disproportionately favor mainstream news providers over more specialist or alternative outlets. And perhaps the most contentious metric is one which Google refers to as importance by comparing the volume of a site's output on a given topic to the total output of that topic across the web. So in a single stroke this promotes both concentration at the level of provider by favoring organizations with volume and scale as well as concentration at the level of output by favoring those organizations that provide more on topics which are widely covered elsewhere. Quite simply this is a measure that reinforces both an aggregate news agenda as well as the agenda setting power of a relatively small number of publishers. But even more controversial than the relationship between Google and news publishers in recent years has been Google's keenness to develop partnerships with the surveillance and military-industrial complex. Of particular note is Google's attempts to collaborate with state surveillance programs such as the city of Oakland, California, which developed a state-of-the-art surveillance system known as the Domain Awareness Center based on real-time CCTV facial recognition software, and other audio, video, and data feeds from around the city. Also, the revolving door discussed earlier, which is a hallmark of the MIC, applies equally to Google. Consider Michelle Quaid, Google's chief technology officer for the public sector between 2011 and 2015, and she was voted the most powerful woman by Entrepreneur Magazine in 2014. Before joining Google, she had built a stellar career in Role spanning the Department of Defense and several intelligence agencies. Interestingly, at Google, she self-styled her job as that of a bridge builder between big tech and big government, especially the worlds of military and intelligence. Also consider Shannon Sullivan, head of Google Federal, the company's government-facing division. Sullivan was a former defense director for BAE Systems, the world's largest arms manufacturer and a senior military advisor to the U.S. Air Force. Also, the Obama administration from the outset forged a cozy relationship with Silicon Valley, which led to a regular exchange of senior staff between Big Tech and the White House. For instance, Loisa Terrell, former legal counsel to Obama, joined Facebook as head of public policy in 2011 before being appointed advisor to the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, in 2013. And in 2015, Facebook hired former FCC chairman Kevin Martin to direct its mobile and global access policy. So what we see is these examples are simply a brief overview, but this initial discussion paints a picture of a complex network of institutional power with media, communications, and technology players occupying key positions and crucial roles within it so let's consider what are the implications of the extreme consolidation of media power firstly the large source of political contributions comes from corporations and the media conglomerates are some of the largest corporations in the world in the Forbes 2000 ranking of the world's largest public companies based on sales profits assets and market value 2022 verizon earned 19th position at&t came in 20th and comcast number 32 big tech companies also fared very well at the top of the list alphabet which is google's parent company came in 11th in the world and facebook now rebranded as meta sits at a comfortable 34th position so the sheer size and influence of these companies alters the political discourse available to potential voters especially during election campaigns their communication systems dictate the issues and political narratives promoted by the various candidates. Secondly, with the consolidation of media power, the number of players controlling the vast media industry is now at alarming levels, which inevitably equates to a narrower flow of information being reported. One outcome of this low competition is that media outlets tend to offer highly repetitive content, which is always aligned to the parent companies political and corporate objectives and there is an imbalance in the newsworthiness of items chosen for print or broadcast which inevitably leads to a lack of scrutiny in journalistic standards so in the long term this leads to a highly diluted message with few variances in reporting between each conglomerate organization. Thirdly Media giants will always be reliant on advertising as their greatest source of revenue. Hence, their corporate and political objectives cannot be isolated from their revenue providing customer base, which in turn influences the discourse surrounding issues of major political significance. Fourthly, the major media conglomerates are in a constant state of corporate flux by buying and selling various profit centers and by merging and splitting various other parts of their organization clearly influences the direction and outlook of a country's free press, their immense power is naturally transferred to the arena of politics and government, allowing them to influence key decisions regarding legislation and policy framework. The presence of big tech acts as a catalyst, magnifying the news media's reach to even wider audiences and cementing their own influence in the process. The consolidation of power in the media industry simply exacerbates the existing forms of media bias, such as the information being reported, becoming narrower and more diluted while continuing to serve short-term corporate interests. And so from the examples provided, it becomes clear that a MIC now extends to much of corporate media and has led to the media establishment failing to provide a check on government use of military power, while simultaneously continuing to influence the public's perception of war by sterilizing the violence and destruction associated with military campaigns. And as a counterbalance, this does not necessarily mean that the MIC operates as a centralized and coordinated vehicle of elite power, or for that matter, where the power is mobilized to produce a consistent agenda consensus. But these are all serious questions that are raised by the union between media and big tech on one side, aligning with the MIC. In addition, these are questions which are overlooked by those who believe that the concept of a functioning power elite belongs to an outdated ideological model dating back to the Cold War era. And so let's wrap up with some concluding remarks. The MIC is an instructive concept in shedding light on the significant changes in military spending and arms production, especially since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, stemming from vast government budget allocations in the USA and other advanced economies during this period. Interestingly, though, military expenditure, similar to other forms of government spending, can also be an important source of aggregate demand during periods of economic downturn and low consumer confidence especially if military spending is funded by progressive taxation as it was during World War II, which indirectly led to more efficient income distribution. And so the flattening of income distribution after 1945 helped facilitate the creation of a large consumer-oriented middle class, which became the cornerstone for the long post-war boom that underpinned America's subsequent political and economic hegemony. It can also lead to the development of new technologies, also generate new industries and create new sources of demand and employment. However, in recent decades, the overall development of the MIC has been steered towards the spectre of perpetual wars in theatres such as Iraq and Afghanistan. This has undoubtedly led to the disastrous rise of misplaced power that President Eisenhower warned of in 1961 as evidenced by the various examples shown in today's episode. In particular, how state governments can be co-opted by non-state actors acting in accordance with a unique political agenda such as neoliberalism and also the use of the revolving door. Also, the established trend of military service industries capturing legislation in the US so that they have access to captive global markets for their goods and services. But even more worrying is the established power of the media and the rising interest of big tech companies in surveillance industries. That's because in the past the spin off from military technology to the civilian sector was an important argument for the value of military production. But now a reverse trend exists, pointing to a spinning in of civilian technology to the military. For instance, many areas of technology which were once the preserve of the military and security services, such as secure communications or cryptography, are now dominated by commercial applications and an increasing number of components that go into the major weapon systems are commercial, off-the-shelf products created by manufacturers who are not traditionally part of the arms industry. Furthermore, companies in the electronics and IT sectors that in the past had little involvement with arms production are finding themselves part of the defense industrial base and sometimes the target of diversification efforts by the major arms producers. And so in the final analysis, the components of the MIC may have changed, but the dynamics and the impact of its vested interest still endure. The extent to which Pentagon spending and the multi-billion dollar contracts, that flow from it are brought into line with strategic and economic reality in a post-COVID world will depend largely on the degree to which the public takes notice and challenges the federal government's budget priorities. And to revert to President Eisenhower's words, the only guarantee against unwarranted influence by the weapons lobby is an alert and knowledgeable citizenry but historically the power of the arms lobby has made it difficult to impose discipline on the Pentagon in the form of fiscal restraints, a clear indicator that the military-industrial complex retains as much of its value in the 21st century as it did when President Eisenhower brought it so forcefully to the world's attention in January 1961, a clear and present indicator that the structure and constituent parts of the MIC may have changed but the potency of its vested interests still endure. The miscalculated folly of America's foreign interventionism during the first decade of the millennium is often contemplated in abstract terms, especially by certain elements of the MIC, such as neoliberal think tanks in the United States. And this becomes more pronounced when we realize that these same advocates for war are constantly clamoring to insert the US military in countless military arenas across the globe while being sanitized by the experience of war at the home front level. War becomes a casual topic of conversation in terms of foreign policy objectives or budget restraints, but ignores the human cost in death, violence and suffering. While most states within the international order have been socialized to adopt a more moderate stance in global politics, the United States still remains an clear. The geographical location of America with its two major ocean borders, combined with its economic power has led to a removal of its diplomatic reverse gear, thus preventing the United States to transform into a more war-averse state, among other great powers, quite simply because the United States has not suffered from material devastation as other war-ravaged countries have done, and there has never been any motivation to select war-averse defensive postures in international politics. Consequently, the American elite and populace have less adverse memories of war than their counterparts in other major states. Those pushing for military action abroad in public debates have usually trumped those advocating restraint, especially when the rallying cries of jobs are mentioned in those states where the MIC is supported by members of Congress. Ultimately one of the main reasons for the continued rise of the MIC in America has been the issue of geography which favors the security environment of the United States, unlike other major powers. America does not have to worry about the potential threat posed by a hostile neighboring adversary because its unique geography offers natural security. And had successive generations of American citizens endured the devastating experience of military conflicts such as those on the European continent? Under these circumstances, can we expect the MIC and the public to have offered such unfettered support for their country's military adventures abroad? The answer would be an emphatic no. And when we review Eisenhower's speech, we see that the military-industrial complex has succeeded in its acquisition of unwarranted influence. The disastrous rise of misplaced power has occurred. The MIC has definitely manipulated the democratic process and American citizenry is neither alert nor knowledgeable and has been incapacitated by the media establishment in its efforts to challenge the power of the MIC. So given this sobering scenario, what can be done to address the pervasive threat of the military industrial complex? Well, there are two possible options which come to mind. Option one, which is to tighten international legal constraints against military interventionism in general, and secondly, to encourage American self-restraint. The first option has severe limitations. A universal legal arrangement based on international law backed by a UN mandate is unlikely to be forthcoming. Primary historical examples where this approach has failed are Serbia, 1999 and Libya 2011. The second option also has limitation, but it holds the most promise of negating U.S. interventionism. To achieve this, American society needs to develop a more sober outlook and embrace ideas which oppose military adventurism. But this remains a tall order given that established media outlets still account for the vast majority of news consumption. Option two, American society should dampen its ethnocentrism, in other words the belief that they have been chosen to advance certain universal truths such as freedom and democracy. Instead, American institutions should adopt a stronger approach to educational reforms that promote a deeper understanding of the values of other cultures and societies. And finally, a key component of the MIC, namely the corporate media establishment, should have its operations placed under a much wider gaze through greater public scrutiny. Because after all, once the drummer boy fails to provide signals above the noise and confusion of battle, the commands given by the military-industrial complex to its troops will simply fall by the wayside, much like the mythical vampire shunning the rising sun. Perhaps only then will the American nation come face to face with the true image of war. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company. And as always... I'll see you next time, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time and 12 noon Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.